Hey everyone, before we begin this podcast, I made a mistake in recording it. During the podcast, I refer to 1 Corinthians 14 verses 15 and 16. However, I took the note down incorrectly. It's actually 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16. So 1 Corinthians 4, not 1 Corinthians 14. I've put the correct reference in the show notes. However, before we begin this, I just wanted to make sure you were aware of that mistake. God bless. In the previous episode, we looked at the issue of Orthodox and Roman Catholics calling their clergy father and the Protestant argument that Jesus commands us not to do that in Matthew 23, 9. And we considered the context of Matthew 23 and saw that Jesus was not giving a blanket prohibition against calling clergy father. He was simply warning his followers against pride and arrogance. Christian leaders always need to be on guard so that they don't fall victim to the same temptations that overtook the scribes and the Pharisees, the temptations of uh, spiritual pride, of arrogance, of thinking that they should be treated special and with deference simply because they hold a title. And in that episode, I said it was probably okay to call clergy father provided it is proper in your tradition to do so. If it's not proper to do so in your tradition, obviously don't do it. If you're dealing with a clergyman who does not want to be called father, don't. But I said it was probably okay, and I should have said it's perfectly okay. Jesus is not giving a blanket prohibition against calling clergy father in Matthew 23, 9. He's warning us against pride and arrogance. But I also said in that episode that there was more to the issue than just whether or not we should call our clergy father. I said that there was a bigger issue, and that bigger issue is not the title of father, but the role clergy are supposed to fulfill, that of being our spiritual father. Our clergy are supposed to fulfill the role of spiritual father in our lives. And so in this episode, I want to talk to you about the fatherly role that our clergy are called to fulfill. Now, before we begin, we're going to be looking at five or six different verses from the New Testament. If you'd like to follow along, I've put those verses in the show notes uh, for you to be able to follow along easily. Now, you don't need to. The verses are pretty straightforward, and I'll read them to you. It's pretty straightforward to follow, but they're in the show notes if you'd like to follow along that way, or if you have your Bible handy, I strongly encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Okay, in the previous episode, I said that Paul uses the term father and even took the term father to himself. So that's where we want to start. I want to take a closer look at Paul's use of the term father. I want to start with 1 Corinthians 14, 15. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Quote, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Unquote. Now, Orthodox and Roman Catholics are going to understand this verse a little bit differently from Protestants. For Orthodox and Roman Catholics, they're going to argue that In this verse, Paul is taking the title of father to himself, so maybe he should be referred to as Father Paul, according to the Orthodox and Roman Catholic understanding. Now, personally, I'm I'm not excited about that interpretation. That feels a little bit like assuming what you're trying to prove. It assumes that any use of the term father in ministry is conferring a title. 
but I don't, I don't see it that way. What I see is that Paul is taking to himself the role of father, whether he's taking the title, I, I don't know. I don't think that's clear from this verse, but he's certainly saying that he fulfilled the role of spiritual father to the Corinthians. And then pay attention to the very next verse. Notice what he does with the role. He says in verse 16, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. He's calling on the Corinthians to imitate him as their father. I really want to lock this down. He is calling on the Corinthians to imitate their fathers. You know, when boys are looking to become men, what they do is they imitate their fathers or whoever is the father figure of their life. That's how boys become men. Monkey see, monkey do. Boys see what their fathers or father figures are doing. They see them as role models and they want to be like their fathers. And they do that by just doing what they do. They imitate their fathers. And it's their desire to be like their father that gives fathers or their father figure the opportunity to exhort, encourage, and even implore them. This is how boys become men. Now, before I continue, let me say this. I understand that a lot of folks grew up with either no father in their lives, no father figure in their lives, or a father figure who really was not worth imitating. Uh, That was my case. I grew up with a father who was really not worth imitating. In fact, uh, just the other day, my sister was laughing at me because I was doing something, it was some behavior that was just like dad. And I was ready to crawl under a rock. It's like, no, I don't want to imitate him at all. So for those folks who grew up with no father or no father figure worth imitating, worth imitating, I just want to say, I feel that pain. I, I, I'm i a part of that. So when I talk about this, boys becoming men and this whole issue of imitating fathers, please understand I'm speaking right now in ideals, and I'm going to use the term uh, boys imitating their fathers, speaking in that ideal to get something else across. Boys imitate their fathers, and so become men. Now, take a look at this in terms of where Paul goes in 1 Thessalonians 2.11. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 says this, quote, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, unquote. We see here that Paul is fulfilling the role of spiritual father to the Thessalonians as a father to his own children. This is how Paul is taking this idea of fatherhood to him. It's the role, and he's using it to exhort and encourage and implore his children. He's doing that as a means of discipleship, as a means of bringing them to spiritual maturity. Now, let me uh, branch off here. I'm going to sniff one rose and then come on back to this uh, idea of fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood. The rose I want to sniff is the issue of discipleship. Discipleship has been getting a lot of attention in Western churches. With the shift to a post-Christian culture, we've come to realize that the church in the West really stinks at discipleship. And so what's been the answer people have come up with? Well, more Bible studies. Give people more information, more knowledge transfer. We need discipleship. Discipleship has become synonymous with Bible studies. This, this transfer of knowledge, get people into the Word. Well, okay, although discipleship is certainly not less than acquiring more knowledge, it is certainly much more than that. Uh, 
And I want you to see here that Paul sees discipleship as a relationship of mentoring. Essentially, he's saying, do you want to grow in your faith? Then do what I do. Be like me. Imitate me. That's what he says here in 1 Corinthians 14, 16. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Imitation. Later, or actually earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse 1, he said, quote, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ Jesus. Unquote. So what we have here is imitate me. Imitate me, just as I also am of Christ Jesus. And then in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, he says, quote, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, unquote. He's saying here that imitating Paul was the first step in the journey to following Christ. Imitating uh, Paul, receiving the word, the imitation and and the, the knowledge transfer, the instruction in the word, they went hand in glove. They went together. In other words, imitation is part of the first step, the first step in the journey of following Christ. Certainly not the last step, but it's certainly the first step. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, we see more than just imitating Paul, the Thessalonians imitated other churches. Quote, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Unquote. So this idea of imitation is not just that we imitate the one spiritual father we may have, but we also imitate other churches, other Christians, Those who are maybe more mature in their faith, who are further along, we certainly want to imitate them. And then finally, in Ephesians 5.1, we read, quote, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, unquote. Oh, I love this verse. We've gone from Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ, to imitate me, to imitate other churches, to now imitate God directly as beloved children. The whole idea of Paul taking the title Father to himself is he wants to point to our Heavenly Father. He says, imitate me, but only as kind of training wheels, only as that step towards beginning to imitate God directly. This is the ultimate goal, to imitate God directly rather than another human. Imitating others is how we start, but it's not how we end. We are to imitate God and imitate him directly. And notice Paul says that we are to imitate God as beloved children. Again, the language of fatherhood. Imitating our spiritual father is a necessary step to begin imitating our heavenly father. This is the role that clergy are supposed to fulfill the role of spiritual father. He is to be the one you imitate as a step towards imitating God. The title father is not nearly as important as the role. Look, your pastor is supposed to be your spiritual father. Is he? If not, why not? If he is someone not worth imitating, may I suggest you need to find someone else who can serve as your spiritual father. But your father, your pastor, your priest is supposed to be a spiritual father. Whether he has the title or not is irrelevant. 
The issue is whether or not he's fulfilling that role. And let me warn you, over the course of your Christian life, you are probably going to have multiple spiritual fathers. In my case, I've had three spiritual fathers in my journey, and a total of four men who have made a deep and lasting impact on me. Let me share with you these four people. The first three were all spiritual fathers to me. The first was a man by the name of Phil Smuland. I met Phil Smuland at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. This would have been back in the 1990s, early 90s. He straightened me out theologically. He saw in me a guy who really wanted to study theology, really wanted to know his Bible, very passionate about the Word. And he saw that I was kind of all over the place, because if you don't have somebody to guide you, it's easy to just kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this other thing, and it becomes this kind of stew of biblical information that might not actually be correct. Phil took me, and he straightened me out theologically. I had the pleasure, the privilege, really, of being in a small group for about, what, two and a half, three years, and I also met with him privately. And Phil was this amazing fusion of intelligence, passion, and humility. He really just an amazing man. Of the three men that I will refer to as my spiritual father, Phil casts a very, very long shadow in my life. And the reason for that was, or is, that he was my first spiritual father. And the first is always the most important, isn't it? He just casts a very, very long shadow in my life. And frankly, I'm privileged that I still get to meet with him occasionally, talk with him. Um, th this man is still going strong for the Lord, and it, it is just exciting to see. So as he is, you know, certainly in the latter stages of his ministry, to see him going so strong for the Lord is certainly something that I want to imitate. Well, if Phil Smulin was my first spiritual father, my second spiritual father was Timothy Corder. I met him at First Baptist Church in Alexandria, and this would have been um, early 2000s. If Phil straightened me out theologically, Timothy straightened out my misconceptions of ministry. What he was, was an example of, as a minister, you need to walk the line. And everybody who's been in ministry knows what I'm talking about here. There is a thin gray line, and you have got to walk it straight. You can never deviate. People are watching you, and when you deviate, they will talk. It harms their faith. It makes them think that, well, if they can, if this guy who's supposed to be a Christian leader, if he can step that far out of line, well, I can step even further out of line. And this is something that Timothy really straightened out with me. Anytime I stepped off the uh, thin gray line there, whoo, he was on me. Uh, he straightened me out. And sometimes, frankly, he was a little bit harsh about it. And I remember at the time I was kind of rah, 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 complaining about it. But in the end, I became very thankful for it. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that no discipline is pleasant at the time that it happens. But in the end, it brings spiritual fruit. And that's exactly what happened with Timothy. He gave me the straightening out I needed so that I would walk the line and be the person I needed to be in order to be in ministry. Phil Smulin, Timothy Quarter, and finally, Father Joseph Eddington. 
Father Joseph is my current priest at the Orthodox Church I'm attending, and he became my father through the practice of confession. Now, before I continue, for my Protestant listeners, hang with me here. Hang with me. I know Protestants have a big hang-up with the whole idea of uh, confession, especially confession as a sacrament. Let me say that in Orthodoxy, there is no penance. There is no sacrament of penance. That is a Roman Catholic thing, not an Orthodox thing. So that when you confess to an Orthodox priest, he may give you some pastoral advice on how to how to handle the sin, uh, how to keep from repeating the sin, how to be able to walk away from it. But it would only be an extreme situation that you would get a quote-unquote penance. And even then, I'm, like I say, it would have to be really, really extreme. Orthodoxy doesn't do penance. But whatever the hang-ups with confession may be in terms of a sacrament, just hear me in terms of the practice. The first time I went to confession, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, okay, can you walk me through this? Uh, what do I do? And, you know, he guided me through it. It was my first time. And he used the term humiliating. He laughed. He said, look, doing this is just humiliating. And that was his term. And I know a lot of people say, oh, it's not humiliating. It's just humbling. Humbling. It's like, mm, nope, it's humiliating. <laughs> I assure you, it is absolutely humiliating. Father Joseph was absolutely correct. But here's the thing. By confessing my sins to him and accepting his advice, he became my spiritual father. He was correcting me lovingly, gently. You know, his love for me was totally clear that he wanted to see me grow in the Lord. And so this was not harsh correction. It Nothing about this was harsh. He was marvelous about it. And, and in this act of confession, Father Joseph began taking on the role as a spiritual father in my life because he is exhorting me and encouraging me and imploring me to press further into Christ and to maintain the liturgical practices that cause me to walk with Christ and to contemplate Christ and to pray without ceasing. That is how Father Joseph has become my father or has become a father figure in my life, and I'm very grateful for him. So my three spiritual fathers who cast long shadows in my life, Phil Smulin, Timothy Corder, and Father Joseph Eddington. But there's a fourth person who casts a very long shadow in my life, and his name is Doug Warren. He is the guy who actually led me to Christ in the first place back in my, um, when was it? When did I become a Christian? Senior year of high school. He's currently pastoring a church up in Vermont, and He's always been my spiritual older brother. He's the guy I go to when life gets hard or gets messy, and I just need to kind of work something out with him. Doug is Doug is not always right, and I've told him this, so if he's listening, he knows that this is what I think. He's not always right. However, he always has great perspective, fantastic perspective, so that he helps me to kind of turn around and see things differently. And usually it's that different perspective that helps get me to whatever solution I need to get to. But Doug has always been that older brother and that although I don't want to be totally like Doug, there are certainly aspects of Doug that I strive to imitate. Again, this idea of imitation. Are there aspects of Phil and Timothy and Father Joseph I want to imitate? Absolutely but also Doug. And although Doug is not a spiritual father to me, he is certainly a spiritual older brother to me. 
There's this pattern of God putting men into my life whom I could imitate. And some became spiritual fathers to me. One has become a spiritual older brother. But all of these men are the ones who are most responsible for discipling me to maturity. This is what it means to be a father in Christ, to be imitatable so that others can imitate you on the way to imitating God directly. Just like Paul said, imitate me. And then he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then imitate other Christians, imitate other churches. And then finally, imitate God. We are to be living imitatable lives so that we can speak into the lives of others to bring them to maturity. This is what discipleship is. It's a discipleship through our spiritual fathers and our spiritual older brothers to be imitatables so that others can imitate us on the way to imitating God directly. So let me ask a couple questions here. Who is your spiritual father? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it's unlikely you've ha- you have just one. In my case, I have three. So, not just who is your spiritual father, but who are your spiritual fathers? And if it's plural, is there one who stands out above the others? Two, who are your spiritual children? Right? Let's turn this around. Who are your spiritual children? Who are the people who are imitating you? And if nobody is imitating you, why not? Now, I don't want to ask that question as a, as a beatdown. I want to be careful about that. But it's just something to consider. It's not just our clergy who are to be fulfilling the role of spiritual fathers in our lives, but we ourselves are to be minimally spiritual older brothers, just like Doug is to me. To imitate Christ, Paul lived an imitatable life. And so my question is, how are our lives imitatable? Who is imitating us on their way to imitating Christ? The call to make disciples can and should be seen as a call to live imitatable lives and then to call others to imitate us, just like Paul did with the church in, uh, in the Corinthian church and the Thessalonian church. Listen, this is not about pride. Okay, a lot of people I think will hear this and think, you know, this is about pride. Oh, imitate me. Almost sounds like spiritual pride. You know, yeah, it's not. This is about helping people take those important first steps towards spiritual maturity. And so my question becomes, how are our lives imitatable? And if our lives are not imitatable, we need to ask why they are not imitatable. And it should drive us to repentance and to seek God. Okay, what I'd like to do is I'd like to wrap up both parts of this series on the issue of calling our clergy father. As I've already said, Matthew 23, 9 is not a prohibition against calling clergy father. It's a prohibition against standing on titles as a pretext for special privileges and spiritual pride. So if you're in a tradition where it's expected to call your clergy father, go for it. And if you're in a tradition where it's not okay, okay, set it aside. But what's important here is not the title of father. It is the role of your clergy as a spiritual father. The title is not important. The role is. And if your priest doesn't want to be called father or your pastor doesn't want to be called father, no worries. But if he does, hey, it's not wrong. Go for it. 
But what we need to seek here is the role. Are they functioning in the role? And more importantly, is there really spiritual pride here, right? Matthew 23, 9 is, an argu- is a warning against spiritual pride. As Christians, we want to focus on the functional position of our clergy. Are our clergy fulfilling the role of our spiritual fathers? If not, why not? And to turn it around, are we fulfilling our role as spiritual sons and daughters to our clergy? Ooh, that might be the hardest question of all. Okay, with all of this said, as always, I want to close in prayer. So if you would, please join me in prayer. Glory to you, our God. Glory to you. And we give glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for our spiritual fathers that you've raised up in our churches. Lord, I pray you'd protect us from all pride, but especially our leaders and spiritual fathers. Protect them from thinking that they've earned some, I don't know, special treatment. And protect us, your people, from treating our spiritual fathers poorly, as if they exist solely to serve our wants and our whims, rather than to lead us gently as loving fathers. Give them wisdom and patience for how to deal with us, and give us wisdom and patience for how to deal with them. We look forward to meeting our Heavenly Father in person. Until then, may we be found faithful in all things. Amen. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.